Amen. If you would, grab your copy of Scripture and open to 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, You can turn in a pew Bible to page 414, 1 Kings 19. I keep thinking that uh, we're going to move on from our discussion of Elijah, but I just keep getting so captivated by these passages of Scripture, I can't stand it. It's good. Tonight is uh, an exciting, uh, again, another exciting passage of Scripture. These narratives are so engaging. I hope that they uh, will just mean all to your heart as it has to mine as you follow along with us. Um, I'm just so astonished at uh, the Word of God day in and day out. I just simply am amazed at how God can say so much in such a Short, uh, just a few words, definitely a, a skill that I have yet to uh, perfect, but it is amazing. I, the more, I, I just have to stop looking, I'll be honest with you. I promise you there's five sermons in this one. I just stop finally and go, okay, that's enough. Because there's just so much here. It's just, it just never quits giving. It's so good. So let's pray and ask God if He'll... Give us ears to hear and open our eyes and hearts so we can uh, just glean into this amazing passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, now we come to you and ask you, Lord, we've, we've sung to you, we've, we've praised you, we've worshipped your powerful name, Lord. We've declared we are the, the clay, Lord. You are the potter. You are the one who molds and shapes and calls us. You are the one who creates in us and gives us a a clean heart, a new heart. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. God, I pray right now that we recognize what we have sung. And Lord, we would allow that preparation to bring us into an understanding of what this passage has to say, Lord. Every person here, no matter what age, no matter where they are in their walk with you, God, I pray that you'd speak to them tonight through this amazing, glorious Word. It's such a gift. Thank you for it. Now, Lord, may the Spirit of God give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll, uh, we'll do a bit of catch-up. Let me just make sure that we're all on the same page. So we left the prophet Elijah, the, the great man of God. We left him uh, in 1 Kings 19 last time. He, in, in chapter 18... He declared to this wicked uh, king Ahab that there would be no more rain. There would be no rain, no, no dew on the ground. Um, God sent him to declare that for his uh, wickedness and abominations towards the Lord. Elijah did that. We followed him through his journeys. And then he had this amazing uh, confrontation between him and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, one of the great passages of scripture. We looked at that where fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering and just uh, declared beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is the one and only true God of the universe, the only God that has power to do that. And Elijah then leaves this, the, the high point of his ministry, the literally the, the greatest moment of his life. And he goes into a deep, dark depression. He runs away because the king's wife Jezebel threatens him and uh, he panics 
and runs off into the wilderness. And so we dealt with that, chapter 19, the beginning part of that last week. And so we are now going to look at this transition of power between these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So let's begin reading in 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 15. So this is after the Lord has restored Elijah, after he is uh, in the wilderness, he's fed him, he's cared for him, he's uh, had a wonderful angel food cake, supreme, uh, cooked by a literal angel. So it's an amazing thing. And then God now sends him back out into ministry, and here's his marching orders, verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Saphat, of Abram Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Saphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, or his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. So Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Now I want you to flip to Second Kings chapter 2. Now I want you to understand that from the moment we just left off, when uh, Elisha declares he's going to be the servant of Elijah, Elijah has taken his cloak, the prophet's cloak, and put it on Elisha, symbolizing a transfer of power. And so this has happened. Now we're going to pick the story up. And 18 years has passed. So this is 18 years later. We're going to see the, the culmination of what began in this field with these oxen and this cloak. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 6. Look at verse 6. Then Elijah said to him, Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood face, facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood at the Jordan. Verse 8. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. And it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be for you, but if not, it shall not be. Then 
it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. Then Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. He also took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Now, I may have lost you a little bit in some of this, but let's put all the pieces together and hopefully you'll see the great encouragement that God has for us in this amazing uh, story about calling. It's really a story about being called. It's, it's, a, it's a narrative in Scripture that when you read it, you should think about who are you? Why are you here? What is your purpose? What is God doing in your life? What has God called you to do? How did you get to where you are? All these questions should be questions that uh, you should seek to fulfill in this calling because this is a story about how God calls someone. And I think that the, the first um, mistake that people will often make with a great narrative like this is think that this is some great experience for some great person at some great time in the past, but certainly it wouldn't be applicable to me. That would be a mistake. I think we sang this morning that he's unchangeable. He's unshakable. He's unstoppable. That's our God. He's unchangeable. That's him. So let's look, first of all, at the revolution of the call. Okay, we'll go back to first Kings 19 and let's look at these scriptures will come up on the screen so you can kind of follow on the screen. The revolution of the call. I want you to see what happens when God calls someone just that we can learn just from reading the, the intricate details that God gives us in this story. Verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Saphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by and threw his mantle on him. Now, first of all, we find Elisha plowing in a field with 12 yoke of oxen. So that would be 12 sequential um, sets of two. So there's 24 oxen. There is basically um, the equivalent of a private jet, okay, in today's economy. This is an unbelievably expensive uh, piece of equipment. 24 oxen. Elisha is clearly wealthy. He is clearly powerful. He is clearly in charge. How do I know he's in charge? I know he's in charge because he's on the 12th and final pair. In other words, he's all the way in the back. Therefore, he's the one who's in charge of everything else that's going on in front of him. Now, this man of great means, I don't know if this was his father's wealth. I don't know if this was uh, his wealth. It doesn't matter. 
we see that he is a man of great means and great power and great authority by what happens. He obviously owns and has authority over this equipment. He's not a hired hand. And here's how we know. In verse 20, it says, He left the oxen and he ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh. He used the oxen's equipment... The yoke is what he used to make the fire to cook the meat. So these are clearly his property that he has slaughtered. He took the equipment, used it for the kindling to start the fire, to slaughter the equipment. And then he calls everyone, because this is an incredible feast, he calls everyone to come and eat. He gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah. So the first thing I want you to see is this is a, a person who has great means. He has authority. He has power. He's not, he's not um, and I think it's important for us to note this. He's not moping around um, realizing that his life is a catastrophe and that if God doesn't call him, he will have no meaning and purpose in life. Sometimes that's the case. But sometimes, sometimes we're just going along life's merry way. We're just sort of uh, facing our struggles and dealing with life in the only way that we know how. And God comes along. You see, I, I want to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of, of only thinking that the calling of God is attractive when we're at the bottom of a pit. The calling of God is attractive no matter where you are. So if you're president of the world, the calling of God is the greatest thing that can ever come into your life. Here's a guy who didn't, it wasn't in need. He wasn't struggling. He wasn't, you know, life was good. But God is better. See, we just need to recognize and realize what this tells us about God and what this tells us about Elisha. So by slaughtering the oxen, what what is going on here? I mean, he he's plowing along. Elijah comes by, throws his cloak on him, and takes off. Elisha then chases after him and says, Hey, can I go back and tell my father goodbye? So I know that he's, you know, he has a family. Can I go back and tell my family goodbye? To which Elijah says, Sure. And then he goes back and why doesn't he just bring the oxen to his dad? Why slaughter the animals? Why burn the implements? What's happening here? You see, it's the revolution of the call. In other words, in the first few phrases, we see the old way of life is gone. There's no turning back. He's slaughtering the oxen, burning the oxen, because this is a permanent transition. He's not, he's not saving this so in case this doesn't work out, I can go back to farming. You understand? This is a one-way ticket. This is a calling to follow God, and He's going forward. Just like when God calls you and me. 
He calls us to go forward. He doesn't call us to look back. He calls us to go forward. Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, that gives people fits, that statement Jesus made. It shouldn't. It's real simple. What happens when you're, what happens when you're behind a plow and the plow's moving forward and you're looking back? The same thing that happens when you're driving down the street, moving forward and looking back. Everyone else is in danger. In other words, you're going to veer off course. You're going to get where you didn't need to go, where you didn't intend to go, where you're not supposed to go. The point is, discipleship is about moving forward. And it's not, it's, it's not, we don't, we don't answer the call to God and say, well, you know, I'll think about it. Well, I'll, I'll see if this works out. You know, God, we'll, you know, we'll see if, uh, if, if everything works out, then I'll, I'll follow you. That's not how it works. I mean, how many of us tonight would, in our testimony, would have a component where, as God called us unto Himself, there were areas of our previous life, I don't mean sin, I just mean areas of our previous life that were not allowed in your new life. And of course, that transition looks a little bit different for all of us. But I can tell you from my perspective that God purged me of everything. 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 I did not... When I got saved and I began to move with the Lord... My business, we sold our house, we, we moved, we, I mean, literally, I, everything that I, my whole life turned upside down in just a matter of a year, everything, as I wrestled through the calling of God in my life. And it wasn't that any of those things were bad, it was just that they weren't part of my new life. You know, God wanted to make sure that when I uh, answered the call to follow Him, that there wasn't anything in my life that I said, oh yeah, I did that, you know. But, you know, it's everything that I have, God did. He gets all the credit. And the way He gets all the credit is, anything that I might have taken credit for, got left behind. And so He slaughters His, his way of making a living. See, His priorities and His values are revolutionized and just we're just we're just reading this little couple sentences and look at what's happened here that just in the way God expresses to us what's happening we see this is a life that has been turned utterly upside down that God has been preparing prior to the calling notice Elijah didn't say hey Why'd you throw your cloak on me? He knew. He knew. Maybe he was, maybe he was like me. You know, you, I think about Elisha and I think, boy, he must have, I mean, he must have been successful at what he did. I bet everybody who uh, knew him sort of envied his position and thought, man, he's really got a great life and he's in charge of all this land and he's got all these uh, uh, oxen and all these animals and he's just, you know, he's really got it made. 
And I think about my own life and I think about how I was running my own business. I was doing what I've always loved to do. And I pretty much thought I had the greatest life in the world. But then God started dealing with me. And as He was calling me, I couldn't wait to get away from it. It was what I once loved. I can vividly remember waking up in the morning and driving to my business and just tears running down my cheeks of, of sadness, thinking, what is wrong with me? And I just wanted to get out so bad because I didn't want to do anything except for what was God's call on my life. No matter what it was, it didn't matter. So in a sense, the call comes. And when it comes, it changes everything. It's a revolution. He has everything you could ever want. And yet he abandons it in an instant. Fascinating. And think about this. This is just a side note. So based on what we know about what's been going on in Elijah's life prior to him throwing the mantle on Elisha, in other words, let me just run over a couple things with you. So I'm imagining in my mind that he gets threatened by Jezebel, takes off into the wilderness. He's been basically on the run with a bounty on his head. Now, I don't know. We can find out when we get to heaven. But let's just suppose... He hasn't had a lot of time to uh, stop and, you know, get his cloak laundered. I imagine the cloak is pretty uh, smelly and filthy and disgusting as he's been living, basically camping uh, out in the wilderness, trying to survive like a maniac on the run. And so this disgusting, dirty, smelly cloak is thrown over this successful agricultural entrepreneur. And what is the calling? The calling is to leave behind all of the ease and all of the success and all of the wealth and comfort of the life you're currently enjoying to be a prophet. Joy. You can be on the run. You can have your life threatened. You can uh, do amazing things, yet no one's going to listen to you. You're going to be poor. You're going to, when you're hungry, you're going to have to wait around for a raven to show up with food as you sit by the brook of Cherith. I mean, and yet, there's no discussion. There's no wavering. There's no... I want to be that way. I want to be that way that that I'm so sensitive to the voice of God in my head that just like Elijah heard the still small voice when he was up on the mountain. It wasn't in the fire, the earthquake. It was in the the still small wind. I want to hear that voice in such a way that God has prepared me for what He has for me so that when the call comes, I'm, I'm ready. There's no questioning. I'm not wondering. You see, what's at issue here with the, the revolution of this call is it, it causes us to ask the question personally in our own hearts. 
What are we doing with our lives? In other words, what is it that's got us so captivated and so busy? What's taking up all of our time and our energy and all? And what is it amounting to? What is it amounting to? In other words, so maybe you're on the tail end of 12 yoke of oxen. And maybe you've amassed this great empire of whatever it is. But at this moment, if he, if he throws off the cloak and says, sorry, buddy, you got the wrong guy. I mean, I've worked too hard to give this up. What does he have at the end of his life? What is he left with? So what? So you plowed fields. So you had great crops. So you made plenty of money. But who cares? What difference does it make? We don't know his name. We're not reading about him. He's just some obscure person in the annals of history. Right? Do you see what hangs at the balance here? It's not that everyone who answers God's call is going to do something to where they're chronicled in Scripture or where, you know, multitudes of people know about what they do. But it is true that answering God's call makes our lives profitable in His kingdom. And apart from answering this call, we just live. We just live. Second thing I want you to see is the source of the call. Now, this may not be as obvious, but it's equally as important and powerful. Who's doing the calling here? Notice in verse 20. Go back to verse 20. When the cloak is thrown on Elisha's back, what is his response? And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Now, what does that mean? It means that when he threw the cloak on Elisha, he just kept going. Who does that? Who just throws the cloak on him, doesn't say anything. There's no commissioning ceremony. Nobody, you know, brings a flag out or plays a trumpet or gets a certificate or has an ordination council. Nope. He just goes on by and keeps going. So much so that Elisha has to run after him. And notice what happens. He takes off running. He catches him and he says, please let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. To which Elijah responds, go back again. For what have I done to you? In other words, do whatever you want to do. I don't care. Why? Because he didn't call him. Elijah is saying... I don't care what you do. I'm not the one who called you. It's not my responsibility. God called you. This between you and God. I'm just the messenger. You see, it seems as if almost like this is not important. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. What it's showing you is that Elijah understands... He's not the one calling anyone. He's just the tool. He's just the vehicle. He's just the, 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 the implement that God's using to bring his man forward. He's confirming God's the one that calls. So that leads me back to us again. So what about us? 
How does that work in our life? How, how does God call us when we're called? Now, we could say that there's a calling unto salvation, but let's go beyond that calling. Let's say, what is, what is, what is in the calling of God? Well, I think initially we're called to be, right? We're called to be something. Because we're obviously not something. And so by the very nature of the term salvation, we've been saved from something. And so we're being called to be something that we're not. So we're all universally called to be something that we're not apart from Christ, which is to be like Christ. That's why we all share the same experience. It just looked a little different, felt a little different, sounded a little different, but it was all the same experience. We all were called. We all repented. We all recognized our sinfulness and our hopelessness and our helplessness. And we cast ourselves on the mercy of God to receive salvation because we've been called to not be what we were, but to now be moving toward the likeness of Christ. So we've been called to be. Right? And that's a universal calling across the room. We've all been called to be, and we've all been called to be the same thing. We've been called to be holy. We've been called to be righteous. We've been called to be generous. We've all been called to be. All of us. But there's another part of our calling. Once we're called to be, we're also called to do. And... What you're called to do is not what I'm called to do. And what I'm called to do is not what you're called to do. So we're all universally called to be the same thing, but we're all called to do different things. So the first part of the calling is universally the same, but the second part of the calling is utterly unique. And so God called each and every person that God calls, He calls to be and to do. And what He called you to do is unique to you. And so what you have to do is you have to embrace your calling to be. And as you are becoming, you need to be exploring. You need to be finding what it is he called you to do. Now, this would explain a whole bunch of things that aren't going on in the body of Christ today. Would it not? I think it would. I think this is a blueprint for understanding maybe why there's so many people who claim to be something, yet they don't look anything like what they claim to be. Let me help you. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says we're God's workmanship. Poema. That's the word where we get the word poem. It means we are God's masterpiece. God is the the artist and we are the creation, if you will. So you've been called to be God's poema. God is the one who is, is molding you and shaping you. He's the potter. We're the clay, right? And so he calls us to repent and to begin a process 
that we call sanctification, a process of becoming Christ-like. But when we're called to be, we slaughter whatever the oxen is in our life and we burn whatever the yoke is in our life. It's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a suggestion. You don't answer the call on a, a trial basis. You're not on a, in a probationary period. It's an irrevocable transaction. And it, we should be very grateful tonight that it's that way. So God calls us to be. What does He call us to be? I mean, a lot of things, but, but let's just simplify this. Let's make this real simple. He calls us to be servants, just like He called Elisha. What is Elisha a servant of? Elisha says, if you let me go back and say goodbye to my family, then I'll follow you. And so he goes back, says goodbye, has a feast, comes back, and the Bible said, and he was Elijah's servant. And what does Elijah represent? He's a prophet, prophet of God. And so Elijah speaks on behalf of whom? God. So he's a servant, if you will, of the Word of God. Because that's what he is. Now, what about you and me? When we're called, what are we called to be? Servants of the Word of God. So, that would explain how we can be people who declare, maybe you, not not you, I'm always picking on you because it's Sunday night. I'm, I mean, I'm talking about all the people who were here this morning aren't here tonight. Okay? Okay. Because you're frowning at me. All right. So that would explain something. Namely, what happens to a person who says yes to the call and is a servant of things but not a servant of the Word? What happens? They just kind of mutter along through life. Their Christian walk is just sort of like a crawl. They're, they're not, the sanctification process seems to be thwarted. Haven't you ever scratched your head and looked around and thought, man, you've been around here a long time. You heard a lot of sermons. You've been in Sunday school class your whole life. And you don't know that? What are you serving? And this would explain how someone can just sort of meander along the path of sanctification and not discover what they're called to do. You see, because if you don't serve the Word, the only guarantee I can give you is this. You're never going to find out what you're called to do. Never. It doesn't work that way. If you want to know what you're called to do, then let me just make it real easy for you. You've got to read the Bible. Apart from reading the Bible, it's not going to happen. The Bible is the key. 
God calls us to do. And I'm telling you, if I know anything, I know this to be true. A person who doesn't read the Bible is a person who's just floating along the stream of sanctification. And yes, there's some, you know, there's some moments here and some moments there, but they never seem to grab hold of what God called them to do. How does Ephesians 2.10 finish? He says, God says, For we're His workmanship, His poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What kind of good works? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in them. How are you going to do that? How are you going to figure that out? I mean, how long can a person stare at Ephesians 2.10 and just... Just sit there and stare at that and go, now, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I believe the Bible's true. I'm looking at Ephesians 2.10. I'm God's poema. Been created in Christ Jesus. I've been created in His image. I've been created to bear His image. I'm His child. I'm not the person I used to be. I've been called to be something new. But to do, I'm going to walk in these good works that have been prepared beforehand for me. Now, how am I in the world am I ever going to figure out what that looks like? What, where am I going to walk? I mean, how do I know? You've got to read the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, you're not going to know. You're not just going to wake up one morning and go, Oh, I think God's called me to start a ministry. I think God's called me to serve in a ministry. I think God's called me to... You're not going to find your place that way. You've got to read the Bible. You've got to read the Bible. You can serve and you should serve. And that's a, a great way of... Moving along this process, I mean, if you, there's so many things I could tell you tonight that are going to thwart your growth and sanctification. I mean, first of all, if you don't want to grow, then it's real easy. Don't do anything. Don't read the Bible and don't serve and you'll just stagnate right where you are. You'll be like a little seedling planted in concrete. You just sit there. That's all you're going to do. Now, if you start reading the Bible, God's going to start illuminating your mind. You're going to start seeing all these things that you've never seen before. If you just start serving, just start serving. I mean, haven't I I've told, told you these stories before that I was so convinced at God's calling in my life that, it, that when I got saved, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, God must want me to work in the preschool. I mean, kids love me. Hey, and I love them. And we speak the same language. I'm on their level. And I, I would walk past the, the, the playground over there. Of course, it looked a lot different then. And the kids would be out there and they'd talk to me through the fence. And I'm thinking, yep, that's what I'm going to do. That's my calling right there. See how that worked out. But see, here's the thing. You got to start somewhere. And the last thing, I mean, so I just got a job in the church and I started working and I started serving and I tried this and I tried that and I did this and I did that and some things I enjoyed and some things I didn't enjoy, but I just did things. But when you're doing things and you're reading the Bible, God's going to show you things. And that's how you're going to discover what you've been called to do.
Because maybe, maybe if anything's accomplished tonight, maybe the only thing that will bear fruit out of this conversation in your life will be the reality that every saved person has been called to do something. Every saved person has been called to do something. So if you don't know what that is, then I suggest you get busy. Because it's there for you. And let me tell you, it's so good that when you find it, you will burn your oxen and your yoke and feed it to everybody else and abandon everything else forever to grab hold of it. When that cloak falls over your shoulders... No one's going to have to ask you twice. No one's going to have to come behind you. No one's going to, you're going to love every minute of it because that's what God's called you to do. That's what He's gifted you for. That's what He's equipped you for. That's what, you see, that's why I get so excited when I see people who are physically suffering and they're, or they're, or they're, they're, they're sick or afflicted in some way, but Let me tell you, man, they're going to be in church every time the doors are open because they serve, they teach children, or they work in the preschool, or they've got some Sunday school department job, or they've got, and that's what they do. I mean, what do you, what do you think when you, when it's freezing cold in the winter and the wind's howling across the parking lot, and there's that person who's always at that door with a smile on their face, holding it open, and they're dressed for the job, and they're ready, they put thought into it, and they got their gloves, and they got their hat, and they're out there doing it, and it only happens once or twice a year, but buddy, they're there, you see, because they find joy in that. And I wonder how many people walk right past them every single Sunday and don't pay any attention to them. And listen, they're not there for you or me to pat them on the back. You can't stop them from being there because it's their ministry. God's called them to do it. And they don't care how silly you think it is. They don't care how little you think of it. No. I mean... Don't you see it? Don't you see it around you? Don't you ever, don't you ever come to church? Come in early for service? Come up here on an off day during the week? And there's this random car in the parking lot. What's that car doing there? Every day on that day of the week, that car is always there. What are they doing? Why are they here? No one's here. They're here. Why? They're they're serving. They're praying. They're practicing. They're preparing. They're here. Why? And how many people just wander in and wander out? And who's losing? Who's losing? Not the people with the mantle on. Oh, no. Because listen, life's going to come to an end. And when it does, it's going to go something like this. 
Well, God, here I am standing before you. And all of my sins have been forgiven. They're all covered by the blood of Christ. So we're not having that conversation. But we are going to have a conversation about about my works, about whether they were wood, hay, or stubble, or whether they were precious metals that didn't burn up. We are going to have a conversation about the motives and intentions of our heart. We are going to have a conversation about the eternal value of the things that we accomplish in this world. You will have that conversation. And though today in this life you might think it's small, in that moment it won't be. And trust me, the people that we just breeze on over. I mean, I I just think about this. I think about that little interaction right there. Well, God looks across at Ralph and he says, Hey, Ralph, where, where were you an hour before service every Sunday? Ralph, don't you live in Wiggins? What time do you have to get up to be here an hour early every Sunday? How come How come you come up here and fix things no one even knows are broken? How, how come you're always got a project going to make things work better so that nobody ever knows you're around? But there's going to come a conversation. And it might seem like a little thing. Because you don't see Ralph up there. You don't know what Ralph does. And Ralph doesn't do it because he doesn't want you to see him. He doesn't do it because he wants you to know him. But I'm telling you this. That conversation is going to happen. Listen, here's how it's going to end. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the presence of your Lord. Oh, I know they didn't think it was a big deal. I I know nobody ever gave you a, a, a trophy. I know nobody's here when you get up. I know nobody knows that you drive from Wiggins every Sunday. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. I don't even know. Most Sundays you don't even drive home. It's so far you just stay here and figure out what to do in between services the whole time. They don't know that. That's okay. But he does. God does. Because that's what he's called to do. Today. I don't know if that'll be his calling forever or if there'll be other things or I don't know. But I never call Ralph and say, hey, are you going to be here today? Because I know he is. I don't call Ralph and say, hey, Ralph, are you sick? You know why? Because it doesn't matter. He's going to be here. In fact, the only time I ever hear from him is if he's going to be out of town. Other than that, you ever hear from him, Mickey? Nope. You ever worry about whether he's going to be here? Nope. See, it's a revolutionary calling because of the person who calls. And it turns your life upside down. Now, let's wrap this up. Third thing I want you to see is that God confirms this calling. He doesn't just leave us out there. He doesn't just... See, here's the thing. You're not walking around going... Hmm. 
God, is this what you called me to do? He confirms it. He confirms it in way, he, he, he blesses you in ways that don't make sense in any other way. If there wasn't some supernatural component to it, it wouldn't make sense. In other words, do you ever think about, you know, when you're hanging out with your family on Saturday, you're having a little family time. You ever think, wonder what my Sunday school teacher's doing today. You ever think about that? I mean, you know, the Sunday school teachers around here, many of them got full-time jobs, some of them got small children. All week long, they're at work. All week long, the kids are at school. All week long, they're doing all the things everybody else has to do. But what happens on Saturday? See, while we're out floating in the pool or boating up and down the river or flying a kite on the beach, they're at home studying, preparing to teach their class. But here's what you don't know. You don't know that because you're not going to hear them complain about that. You're not going to hear them bemoan that because they love it. It doesn't make sense, does it? They don't ever call me up and say, you know what, I'm just sick of this. I'm sick of every Saturday spending my Saturday. And, oh, no. They stay up late during the week. They figure out how to do it. You know why? Because God confirms His call. It doesn't make sense any other way. You see, if they didn't, if they didn't like it, if, if they felt annoyed that they had to give up something, it's not their calling. You see, if, if there's not a supernatural element to what you're doing, you're not doing what God called you to do. Look at what he does in Elijah's life. Verse 11. Here they are. They're walking along. Then it happened as they continued. They're talking that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. Now, that's not commonly what happens when I'm strolling along the riverside with uh, one of my friends. But that's what happened in this case. But as unbelievable as that is, that's not the confirmation. You got to keep reading. Verse 14. So then Elisha took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it divided this way and that and Elisha crossed over. You see, in other words, Elijah asked Elisha, tell me what you want, because I'm about to leave you. And Elisha said the famous words, I want a double portion. To which most people relate to, I want to be twice as good as you, master. But that's not what that means. He says, I want a double portion, meaning I want the portion that would be due a firstborn son. What does he say when Elisha gets taken up? What what is he crying out? My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. He says, "I, 
I want a double portion, meaning I want what a firstborn son would get. Not I want twice what you have. That would be obnoxious. So he wants to be like his mentor. But he doesn't know if he's going to be like his mentor. Because his mentor responded, well, you ask a hard thing. But if you see me when I depart. So he saw him when he departed. So he thought, well, hey, I saw him. So maybe I have it. But I don't know. How do you know? So then he takes his cloak and he does the same thing Elijah did. And he hits the bank of the Jordan and it parts exactly the same way. That's God's way of saying, you got it. Confirmed. So after 18 years of serving Elijah, you're now a prophet. How long are you going to prophesy? 30 years. So as a young man of power and means, plowing a field, abandon all that to follow the call of God. So for 18 years, what do you think everybody said that knew Elijah? Boy, what do you think everybody from his hometown said? You left all of that to serve somebody? What do you do? Like make him muffins and tie his shoes and yes, sir, no, sir. You were in command of 24 oxen. You had all of this at your disposal and you abandoned that for 18 years of servitude. What a fool you are. Hmm. I don't know. I think to myself, I say, you know, come on, Wade. Everybody knows Sunday afternoons for taking naps, man. But you have such an easy job. You don't work all week, do you? No. You're just lounging around. Then Sunday comes. You could go home and take a nap. But that's not what God called you to do. So every Sunday, you're off to the jail. You're off to preach the gospel to people who don't really want to listen. People who don't, they're not going to, they don't have any bearing on your life. They don't know you. You don't know them. Whether they listen or don't listen, it's not going to change anything about your life. It's not going to pad your pocketbook. Nobody's going to. Know what you do because we're not there. So you're not going to get an award. Nobody's going to give you a prize. But here's what a lot of people are thinking if they're not saying it. Man, you're crazy. You're crazy. Why don't you just go home and relax? Take a nap. Kick back. Enjoy it. It's Sunday. But no. You serve. Because that's the revolution of the call. So how about you? 
Where are you at? God called you to do something. Miss Savvy's 90 years old. God called her to do something. There's some little children in here. God called them to do something. And everybody in the middle. God called you to do something. And if I was you, I'd get to looking. It's somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for how you instruct us and teach us. Father, we just rejoice. We just rejoice in a God who comes alongside us, Lord, just in the ho-hum moments of life sometimes and hurls a cloak over us and changes our citizenship from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. Lord, you didn't send your son to die on a cross so that we could just exist. Lord, you are a God of such amazing detail and creativity that it would be foolish for anyone here tonight to think that you just sort of skipped over them. They don't have any gifts. They don't have any abilities. There's no calling on their life. But no, Lord, you're far too perfect for that. And so, Lord, tonight, help us to shed the temptation to be condemned in what we're not doing and to run wholeheartedly with joy overflowing to what we could be doing. That this message is not about yesterday. It's about looking forward. It's about saying, God, you're a God of second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. You're a God that keeps calling and keeps calling. And you're so good and wonderful that you can use all of us. No matter who we are, you can use us. And God, that's good news. That is good news. Because this world works really hard to make us believe we don't matter. That we don't bring anything special to the table. And that we ought to just give up. But not you, Lord. So we rejoice tonight. We say, Potter, come. Mold us, shape us, make us into your poema that we might display your goodness for all the world to see. So, Lord, as we open this altar, I pray that we just respond to what you call us to, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to come and pray, you make your way down. If I can.